today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hello. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. This is a special message taught in the summer of 2019. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's go ahead and have a seat. And I have been excited uh, to get into God's Word with you this morning. Uh, It's a privilege to once again uh, proclaim God's Word uh, in Pastor Pilgrim's absence. As you may have heard, he is out in California. He's going to be speaking at a conference this week. Um, So we need to be lifting him up, especially on Thursday. On Thursday morning, um, he's going to be speaking there. Uh, and then he's, uh, he and Jen are actually going to be taking a couple weeks vacation. So for the next couple weeks, we have the privilege of having some guest pastors to be with us. Um, both of them you know well if you've been coming to Shoreline for a while. Next week, we have Pastor Eric uh, from Jacksonville who's going to be with us. Yes. And then uh, the following week, we're going to have Pastor Carl from Sarasota. Yes. I won't tell Eric that you cheered louder for Carl than him, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, so it's a great couple weeks. And then when Pastor Pilgrim gets back, we're going to be diving into a survey of the Psalms called Doxology. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that as well. Well, as we come to our passage this morning, um, let's be reminded that this right here is the very Word of God that we hold in our hands over 2,500 times in just the Old Testament, the Bible says that God spoke what is written in these pages. And we know that Scripture has authority this morning. Scripture has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that Scripture is sufficient, uh, meaning that in Scripture we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We have everything that we need to know about God and what God requires of us. We know that Scripture is inerrant and infallible, meaning that it is absolutely true and totally trustworthy. And finally, we know that the Word of God is active, it's powerful, it's living, it's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. Amen. So as we come once again to God's Word Let us not come with a cavalier attitude. Let us not come um, saying, man, you know, I've heard this before, but let's be asking the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Dear Lord, what a privilege it is to sit under your teaching this morning. As we study this section in Hebrews, may we give this passage the weight and honor that it is due Help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to receive these words and to obey them. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us and giving us power over sin and those things that so easily entangle us. It's all for your glory that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, who remembers our theme for 2019? If you know it, let's say it together. Ready? Run with endurance. That's exactly right. 
And as I was considering what passage to preach this morning, I was talking with Pastor Pilgrim, and we said, you know what, we're halfway through the year. It would be a good idea to just refresh our vision for 2019 and go a little deeper into the book of Hebrews. Um, Because, you know, we're halfway through this year, and obviously the newness of 2019 has worn off a long time ago, uh, and we may be getting weary. There may have been things that have happened in our lives this year, whether it's been sin or whether it's been trials and circumstances that have, um, that have weakened us. And so I've titled the, the uh, sermon this morning, Encouragement uh, for the Weary Runner, because we need that. We need that. We need to go back to God's Word for this encouragement. So this morning, we're going to look at most of chapter 12 of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, um, please turn there or swipe there. Um, and we're going to specifically look at verses 1 through 17. Um, and then we're going to jump to the end of the chapter and look at verses 28 and 29. And as you're turning there um, this morning, it's always wise uh, to take a step back and to look at each book in its context um, to see uh, what the, osp- the author is trying to teach us in the, in the general context. And I really appreciate how Pastor Pilgrim, whenever he um, starts a book study, he, uh, he starts it by asking a series of W questions. Do you remember those? Uh, who, what, when, where, why, etc. And so there are a couple things to consider as we're looking at chapter 12 this morning. Uh, first of all, it's as we look at the book of Hebrews, it's unclear um, who the audience is specifically, but because it's filled with so many references to Hebrew history and religion, uh, and the title kind of gives it away as well, all of that suggests that it was written to a group of who? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, you got that. Hebrews. Exactly. Um, and it seems like many of these Hebrews were believers, yet there were some among them who uh, had, were attracted by the message of Christ but had yet to repent and trust in Christ. And so there's actually three groups of people within the Hebrews that are being addressed here. First, it's Hebrew believers. Second, it's unbelievers who had head knowledge but no heart knowledge. So they intellectually understood uh, what Christ had done, but they had not believed it. And then there was a third group, unbelievers who were attracted um, by the gospel, but were still undecided. They were still exploring these claims. And it's also clear from the larger context that there was a threat or a possibility of intensifying persecution. Uh, And we're going to see that briefly here in chapter 12. We do not know who wrote the book, Uh, A whole list of people has been suggested. Of course, Paul uh, is at the forefront to that, but also Barnabas, uh, Silas, Apollos, Luke. um, All these have been suggested as the author, but we're not sure. Uh, But ultimately, we do know that the Holy Spirit was the author. And scholars have dated this book to be, uh, to have written sometime between 67 and 69 A.D., before uh, Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70. And the central theme of Hebrews, this is super important. If you're taking notes, write this down. The central theme of Hebrews is that God has provided a perfect priest and sacrifice in the person and work of Christ. I'll say that again. God has provided a perfect priest and sacrifice in the person and work of Christ. 
No longer are we bound by the Levitical sacrificial system where we must continually offer sacrifices and have a priest intercede for us. No more. That only temporarily covered sin. But now we have the perfect sacrifice, the perfect intercessor whose work completely removes the stain of guilt and sin from us. And so the author spends about the first ten and a half chapters unpacking this idea, comparing the old and new covenants. Uh, And then in chapter 12, he turns more practical. He gets more practical, and uh, we have this important word in the beginning of chapter 12, therefore. Um, So now that we understand what Christ has done, this is how we shall live. This is how we shall live. So as we come to chapter 12, there is uh, four main ideas that we're going to see this morning. Uh, and there's some sub-points underneath those. Uh, first, we're going to see that Jesus is our foundation. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. Next, we're going to see that Jesus has made us family in verses 5 through 11. We're going to see that Jesus gives us strength to keep running in verses 12 through 17. And ultimately, Jesus calls us to worship in verses 28 and 29. So let's look at this first point. Jesus is our foundation. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 and, and read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that uh, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So in these first four verses, we've got an amazing description of both our Christian life and Jesus' role in our salvation. Um, And the author of Hebrews uses a great illustration here um, that's relevant to to us today as well, and that's the idea of sports, sports and running. Uh, We know that both the Romans and the Greeks in their culture sports was very important, Um, and in those days, like it is for our day as well, when we consider and and think of the Olympics, um, it's very patriotic to be a good athlete and to bring pride to your country. So the first thing that we're encouraged to do is to remember those in the past who are great examples of living by faith. Um, Back in chapter 11, if you haven't read chapter 11, I encourage you to do that. An amazing hall of faith, heroes of the faith. Uh, we, uh, We see this great list of folks. We saw how God worked through them for his glory in spite of their own sin and weaknesses. Because believe me, the folks that are mentioned in Hebrews 12 were not perfect at all. Um, the idea here is we look at so, uh, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, not so much that they're spectators watching us, um, but that their lives are a witness to us, to encourage us to live in the same way. They are bearing witness to us that God will be faithful in our lives to see us through. Uh, and you may have heard we've been announcing it for a couple weeks. We have, um, during the summer, we have an amazing opportunity to play softball uh, as a church. Uh, and we're not, we don't have a game this Monday, but we have, so don't come out this Monday, but come out the following Monday. We'd love to have you uh, come and cheer us on. But as we're playing, you know, this year we're really, really privileged to have some major talent on our team. We're doing very well, 4-0. 
Uh, and sometimes I see some of the talent on our team, specifically James. James and Brett uh, are the most talented on our team. And I've seen James before. You know, he, he, he gets his bat and he puts this little donut thing on it. Um, or maybe sometimes I've, see, I've seen him swinging two bats at the same time. And I've watched him. And you know what? I'll be honest. I, I've never really had a desire to do that. Uh, but I, I guess I've not uh, wanted to work hard enough uh, to get a home run because they will take the donut off, they will set the second bat down, and they will go and literally hit it out of the park. Uh, two games ago, uh, Brett hit it over the fence, and then James, not to be outdone, he got up and he hit it over the fence. Um, so we had back-to-back home runs, uh, and it was incredible. And, and actually, last game, Brett had an in-the-park homer by just a really fast grounder that just went all the way out to the fence. Uh, and so, man, I am just privileged to be on a team that has good players. It's great. Um, but we have this picture here, don't we? We have this picture that the athlete will lay aside anything that gets in the way to run with endurance. And in view of the context of the book of Hebrews, uh, they were told to lay aside that Levitical sacrificial system that only led to legalism. The outward religiosity of that system would only get in the way, um, and even worse, it could actually catch someone in a false religion that would not save uh, two examples that we see in Scripture uh, is first, of course, the religious leaders in Jesus' day who were caught in this. And then also in the early church, we have the um, example we hear about the Judaizers, those folks that were saying, yeah, Jesus is all right, but you have to be circumcised. You have to keep some of the law to be saved. And in Galatians 5, in part of Paul's rebuke to the Judaizers, uh, he uses the same running analogy that's mentioned here in Hebrews. He says, you were running well. You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? The sin also mentioned here in these open verses, opening verses here either refers to the sin of unbelief, which some in this group were in danger of, or others mentioned in this chapter. There's bitterness is mentioned in this chapter. Sexual morality, immorality is mentioned in this chapter. Um, and of course, we know as well that in our walks with the Lord, uh, how ongoing sin will stunt our growth and easily distract us from running well. We all know this personally. It gets our mind off Christ uh, and, and takes us astray. Let's have Charles Spurgeon lead us into the next thought. Um, He just describes this section so well. Look at what he says. He said, This must be a tough race which requires such stripping as this. If every weight of care must be laid aside and every rag of sin, who is sufficient for these things? How can we, poor limping mortals, run in such a race as this? Even the starting is beyond us. How much more must perseverance in it outreach our strength? See, my brethren, how we are driven to free grace, how we are driven to the power of the Holy Spirit. The race which is set before us most clearly reveals our helplessness and our hopelessness apart from divine grace. The race of holiness and patience, while it demands our vigor, displays our weakness. We are compelled, even before we take a step in the running, to bow the knee and cry into the strong for strength. We dare not retreat from the contest, but how can we begin a struggle for which we are so unfitted? Who will help us? To whom shall we look? 
Does not all this very admirably introduce the verse, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Well said. And he makes a great observation. He says we are helpless to even start this race. How much more do we need his help while we run? These opening verses tell us that Jesus is the founder, or another way we're to say it, he's the originator of our faith. And he is the perfecter or the completer of it. And you know Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish the work. And so we're called to look at Jesus, whose work is the only thing, the only thing that can save. He endured the cross and suffered through the shame of the, cru- of the crucifixion, all for the joy that was set before him. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, man, what, what is that joy? Um, how could Jesus have joy in the midst of the most intense, horrifying suffering that anybody has endured? Well, the verse tells us, it says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's primarily from completing the Father's will, the Father's work, and then being seated. But, you know, there's another passage that um, describes this well. In the second to last verse of the book of Jude, it says this. We get a glimpse of that joy. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Again, that running analogy, to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great what? Joy, with great joy. So it also brings our Savior joy to be able to, uh, for him to present us, those he bought with a price, to the Father, to the Father. And it's the completion of that narrative arc in Scripture that we see that begins with creation and ends in consummation when everything will be finished. And just a side note for this, not only is it important to look at each book of the Bible in its context, but also to look how does the book, the book fit into the whole context of Scripture. Because remember, these, these books are not random, not random. There is one overarching story that's going through the whole Bible, all pointing to Christ and his work. So that's, let's remember that as well. But we're not only to look at Jesus for the work of salvation. We also look to him as an example in, in suffering for strength to continue running. Look at verses 3 and 4. It gives us the best example, Jesus, of being willing to suffer in obedience to God. He endured great hostility on the way to the cross. And the Hebrews are being reminded here that their suffering doesn't come close to that. It says in verse 4 that they had not experienced the shedding of blood. That's, that means they had um, not died for their faith. There was no martyrdom yet at this point. That may have come in the future, but at this point they had not been martyred uh, for their faith. But they had endured persecution. They had. Um, just turn back a couple pages and look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. And this gives us a little bit of a description of the, the persecution that they had endured up to this point point. Verse 32 through the end of the chapter, chapter 10. But recall the former days when, uh, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So you see, they had quite a few things happen to them. They had some of their property confiscated. They had, they had reproach and affliction. They were slandered. There were some that had gone to prison. So they hadn't endured some serious persecution, but not up to the point of martyrdom. And so he tells us here not to throw away your confidence, confidence, because we are not people like that. We are not people who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith. And so then he goes on to illustrate this by looking to chapter 11. Here's some illustrations of some great folks who did this. And then he continues to remind them of this by, in this chapter, looking to the ultimate example of Christ. Christ. And uh, one of my favorite missionary quotes is by C.T. Studd. There's a lot of great ones out there, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Jim Elliott. Um, But C.T. Studd said it well. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. No sacrifice. So first we see that Jesus is our foundation. He was the foundation of those witnesses who have gone before. He's a foundation in our salvation and also our foundation in uh, suffering. And I'm so thankful for Chris and the worship team. They did such a great job in leading us this morning. Uh, the song choices, Jesus, firm foundation, just so well, so well done. Well, next we have point number two. Why should we be encouraged to run with endurance? Because Jesus has made us family. Jesus has made us family in verses 5 through 11. Let's read those together. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The idea of discipline in our society, in our culture uh, today is fading fast, isn't it? Um, society is telling parents, hey, don't, you don't really need to discipline your kids. You do not need, of course, not at all, bring them up in the um, admonition and the fear of the Lord. Um, but sit back, give your kids everything they want and every opportunity, and watch what they will become. Um, every morning, uh, I listen to uh, one of the best podcasts out there. It's called The Briefing. Uh, it's done by Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist a Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I can't ha- more highly recommend this podcast to you. It's 30 minutes long, and what he does is he takes um, the current things that are happening in our culture, whether it's politics, um, all kinds of different cultural thoughts, and he, he talks about them, and then how do we look at these things with a biblical worldview? 
And just recently on the briefing, he was um, commenting about a cover story uh, in the magazine called The New Scientist. The New Scientist. And there's an article there. It's written by a man named Robert Plowman, who is a geneticist at King's College in London. And this is what he says at one point in the article. I think uh, my latest book actually has a good message for parents that they should lighten up and enjoy their children because despite what they think, parents aren't in control. You may think that sometimes, but it's not true. You are. (laughs) If you think your kids are clay that you can mold, forget it. And he concludes, I think it's better if we think of parents as resource managers whose job it is to find out what their kids like to do and give them opportunities to do it. Why not accept that it's a relationship, enjoy it as best you can, and watch who your children become? Now, there is some truth in there, but he goes way too far. And this is how Moeller responds to this. He says, now just consider not only how ridiculous this proposal is, how contrary to a biblical and Christian worldview, and furthermore, how contrary to basic common human experience. But just notice uh, how implausible this is as a methodology or a platform for parenting. Just consider parents as resource managers whose job it is basically to watch their children and find out who they become. But if all you were going to do is resource manage your children and see how they turn out, you won't like how they turn out. (laughs) Very true. And it's a great parallel for us and how the Lord disciplines us. Thank the Lord that um, he has given us um, the answers, uh, the correct worldview, the right worldview that answers all the big questions of life, including the biggest one, why are we here? But it also um, gives us focus in every area. Uh, In this case, it guides how we raise our kids. Um, Let's look at these next couple verses together and rejoice as we're looking at these that our Father is faithful to discipline us as sons and daughters and that he also isn't a resource manager uh, for us because if he was, if this was true, uh, there would be only one outcome and we would be separated from him in hell for eternity. Uh, But we learn a couple things in these verses about discipline. Uh, The first thing that we see is that discipline is out of love. Discipline is out of love. In verses 5 and 6, we're told not to forget his promise. Not to forget his promise as sons to us. And he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 here. Uh, Trials and sufferings are from the Lord. I mean, he's using them to teach and discipline us. We've been adopted into his family, uh, and he, uh, it, we are considered his true sons and daughters. So just as we love our kids by being faithful to discipline them in various ways, so the Lord loves us by treating us the same way. Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12 gives us a little insight into this. This is what he said. So to keep me from being conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so we see here that the Lord disciplined Paul. Why did he do it? He says it two times, to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from having a prideful attitude. 
And we all struggle with that, right? Pride has been called the first sin, the, the, the sin that everything goes back to. Uh, we've all struggled, if we're honest, we've all struggled with pride this week. We all have, having an arrogant, a conceited attitude in different situations. But just like the Lord disciplined Paul, he's going to do the same for us. He's going to use our weaknesses. He will use insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities to work in our lives. So the question is, is how will we respond? How will we respond? And I'm pray for the, I pray for the faith and strength to answer with Paul. I will boast in Christ so that his power and glory will be displayed. Lord, give us the faith and strength to be able to do that. Well, the next couple verses in this section show us another aspect of the Lord's discipline. It proves we are truly saved and in his family. If you need assurance of your salvation this morning, this is for you. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 again. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father, uh, uh, to, to the father of spirits and live? And as we mentioned earlier, we live in a society where uh, it's telling us not to discipline our kids, but we know uh, from a biblical standpoint, in order to be faithful parents, we must enact discipline on our kids. Here's a couple verses to remind us of that, all from Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And then just a couple verses down, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So the author's point he, here in Hebrews is that the father only disciplines his own sons, and that is proof that they are his children. And I'm sure there have been times when you have been around out-of-control kids, and you think to yourself, they just need a good spanking, right? Uh, you may have felt at times like disciplining your friends or neighbors' kids, and if we're honest, um, our friends and neighbors have probably felt the same way about our kids um, at times. But we can't do it. It's not our responsibility. Now, we may step in and encourage them, like, hey, you need to listen to your parents or um, stop hitting my kid um, or whatever it may be. Uh, you, can, you can step in and encourage them, but it is not your role um, to give them the time out to go give them a spanking. That is not your role. That is the parent's role to do that. Um, and so God's discipline in our lives is proof that we are his children. And I hope that this maybe gives you um, a new perspective and encouragement on trials that you may have gone through already this year. If you are weary this morning, we often ask those questions like, where is God? Is God here? Does he even care? And we actually answered those and looked at those questions just in our recent study in Habakkuk, didn't we? with Habakkuk crying out to the Lord. But the answer is yes. Not only is God there, but he loves you so much that he's bringing this discipline into your life to conform you to his image, to grow you, to sanctify you. But there's a warning also here in verse 8, and that's the word illegitimate. 
And this is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word is used, but it is used other places in Greek literature in the, at the same time Scripture was written. Uh, it describes those who were born to slaves or born to concubines. And uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, a commentator, um, who actually just passed away this year, Warren Wearsby, uh, he has a good insight here on the screen. I've met in my ministry people who profess to be saved, uh, but for some reason they never experienced any discipline. If they disobeyed, they seemed to get away with it. If I resisted God's will and did not experience his loving discipline, I would be afraid that I was not saved. All true children receive his discipline. All others who claim to be saved but who escape discipline are nothing but counterfeits, illegitimate children. And God's word is clear. This morning, all true believers will be lovingly disciplined by the Lord. If you can't look back on your life and recall moments where you've seen the Lord working and conforming you, um, then it may be a good uh, moment in this service to consider your relationship with the Lord. Have you repented and put your trust in Christ alone to save you? And there's many here, including myself and uh, the folks who will be at the prayer table in the back that would love to talk with you about that after service. But the final aspect of discipline that we see here is that discipline produces fruit. Discipline is out of love. Discipline um, proves that we are saved, and now discipline uh, produces fruit. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. For they, uh, referring to our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we see that discipline produces two things in us. The first thing it produces is holiness, holiness. And we have a good parallel passage here in 1 Peter chapter 3 on the screen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So by the work of Christ, when we trust him, We are set apart, adopted into God's family. And now God looks at us through the work of Christ and sees us as holy. But he also gives us new desires and a new nature. We are no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. And that's all through Christ, always. Uh, Another way that he promises to make us holy, to sanctify us, is through discipline, as we're seeing here. It's for our good, and it brings us closer to the mind of Christ. So first, holiness. The second thing we see here is that uh, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this is really just another outworking of holiness, but instead of continuing to want to sin, we now have the desire to do what is right. But there is also peace, and that is so important. We now have peace with God through Christ. We are no longer under God's wrath. We are no longer at war, at enmity with God. We are no longer rebelling. We are now in a loving relationship with our Father. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Right. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of peace is something that we've been talking about, about our kids with recently. Um, and, and they've been asking us, you know, what does it mean to have peace? Especially our six-year-old son, uh, Keith. He's asked me a couple times, is it like a piece of cake? 
Uh, I said, no, no, son, it's a little, little different than that. Um, our, uh, good, I like where you're headed, but that's not that, that type of peace. Um, our relationship with Christ gives us ultimate peace, uh, free from worry, from the wrath to come. And it also affects us now um, in our day-to-day life. We can live with joy because we know that we've been forgiven. And we just sang this song this morning, one of my favorite new songs. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now is and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to read those words. I just want to sing them. Um, but that is, that is the truth. So discipline is out of love. Discipline proves we are in his family. And then discipline also produces fruit in us. And so with that, we come to point number three this morning. Point number three, Jesus gives us the strength to keep running. And he's going to do this in a couple different ways, uh, through some encouragements and through some warnings. And as we begin this section, there's another therefore here in verse 12. So once again, considering what we have just talked about here this morning, this is how we live in light of those truths. Let's read from verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." And so there's a couple encouragements and a couple warnings. First, he, he brings us back to the race analogy that we started with. And he quotes uh, from two different passages, in part from Isaiah 35 and then also Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4 says this, Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. He's saying that when discipline and trials come, don't allow these circumstances to get the best of you. We must endure and get that second wind that refreshes us to keep running. And next, he encourages us to strive for peace and holiness in this section. And we talked uh, a bit about this before, but consider another side to this one. Remember who the audience of the book is, the book of Hebrews? There's believers. There's unbelievers with only an intellectual knowledge and unbelievers who are attracted to the message of Christ but still undecided. And so the question is, do our lives attract unbelievers? Do our lives attract unbelievers? Striving for peace and holiness will definitely set us apart, won't it? Because, man, so many situations we're in in our work, in our families, with unbelieving friends, that is the exact opposite of what folks are striving for. So if we do that, if we strive for peace and holiness, that will make a difference. Others will be influenced. Are you striving for peace, like Paul says in Romans 12? 
getting involved in the drama of other people's lives is, is tempting, but are we encouraging Christ-likeness and peace in those moments? Uh, it will make a difference. So the third thing that we are told to do here next is to watch out for one another. Look at, look at verse 15 again. It says that we're called to live our lives in such a way, proclaim the good news so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And this is referring to those who come too late uh, and get left out. He's thinking again of those Hebrews who knew all the facts about Jesus but had not taken that step to trust him as Savior and Lord. And thank the Lord, man, I thank the Lord every day that he has allowed us to live in an age of grace during this time where he's given us some time in our life to choose or to reject Christ, to respond or to reject. But we must make our choice. And if that choice is to ride the fence, dip our toes into Christianity, kind of see what it's all about, but still hold on to the world, then, then one day it may be too late. Uh, and the horrible reality will set in that we have uh, failed to obtain God's grace. And he also warns us again of root, uh, against a root of bitterness. And he takes this phrase from the Old Testament as well, Deuteronomy 29, 18, which says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So this is describing a person who comes close to belief but then rejects Christ uh, totally uh, and seeks to cause division, spread false religion, to cause trouble. And another word for this type of person is an apostate. An apostate, somebody uh, who comes so close but then all, totally rejects Christ um, and is the exact opposite. So how do we watch out for another here, we're by striving for peace and holiness, proclaiming the gospel to others, but we also watch out for one another by uh, opposing those and warning others about those who try and spread a bitter fruit. And finally, he closes this section by giving us a really Thanks bad example. A really Story bad example is a warning Sunday to us. He's saying, man, here's a sure way to not even be in the race, and that's to have Esau as your sports hero. You do not want to look up to him. And of course, you can read the account of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 and uh, chapter 27. Um, but for the sake of time, we're just going to stick to our text in Hebrews. But you know the story, right? Esau is a great hunter. He comes back in from hunting. He was famished, very, 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 very hungry. Uh, and so he sold his birthright, his inheritance, to his crafty trickster brother, Jacob, for um, some good uh, stew that probably had brisket in it that was made from Cory, but I, we, I don't know about that, uh, but some good stew. Uh, and there's a, multiple layers in this story that need to be studied, but the author of Hebrews singles out Esau for this example. And the ESV calls him um, sexually immoral and unholy. The New King James calls him a fornicator and profane. Um, other translations call him godless totally apart from God, godless. So he is the uh, example, he's the opposite, actually, he's the opposite of those heroes that are listed in Hebrews 11, total opposite of that. He's a person who wants the blessings of God, but does not want God himself. And he did regret what he had done. 
We see that in Genesis. We see that here. But he did not repent. And he was very, very sad, and that sadness led to tears. Uh, but sadness doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. Um, sometimes it just leads to despair and to death. And we see an example of this with Judas, who uh, was so depressed and despaired uh, for what he did to the Lord. But he didn't repent. Uh, he went and killed himself. So sometimes it leads that way. But Esau is a warning for us to come to a point of true repentance and turn to Christ. And earlier in Hebrews in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, we're encouraged to, uh, like, today, and we're talking this morning, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that's our prayer for anyone in this room this morning. Don't listen. We beg you, don't listen this morning and turn away from the truth. Don't turn away. But we can't stay with Esau this morning. I don't want to leave us here with this bad example. Uh, we, we need to look ahead. We need to look to the future and see what's in store for those who know Christ. Let's look at the end of chapter 28 for just a glimpse. Look at verse 28, the end of chapter 12. Therefore, another therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so this brings us to our closing point this morning. And as we get here, I ask the worship team to come up at this time. So our final uh, point this morning is that Jesus calls us to worship. He calls us to worship. Those who are in Christ, uh, we are being given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in verse 24, uh, we have uh, a new medi mediator in the new covenant, Jesus Christ. His blood is better than any of the previous sacrifices that were given. The work accomplished on the cross is finished. It's truly finished. It's, it's final. It's completed. The case is closed. And we can have supreme and total confidence in that this morning. And so what does that bring us to? What does that drive us to do? If we are saved, that drives us to worship. That drives us to come to the Lord with an attitude of awe and reverence for what he has done. Verse 29 says that, that our God is the consuming fire. And one day he will return in judgment and consume those forever in eternity, those who turned away their places with Satan and the angels. But he is also perfect and righteous. He is the perfect and righteous judge. He is the one who is still speaking this morning. He is still speaking from his word today. And he's calling us. He's calling us this morning. He's saying, my unshakable kingdom is waiting. Come and join me. It's waiting. Come and join me. And so we run. We run with endurance. Why? Because Jesus is our foundation. He has saved us and put us in this race. We run because he has made us family, and he promises to sanctify us through the work he started, through discipline and correction. We run because it's only through him that we have strength to keep running. He makes us holy, and he enables us to live in peace and warn others from apostates who cause division. But ultimately and finally, we run as an act of worship looking forward to join him in his kingdom that will go on forever.
where every day will be better than the one before. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we, we come to you once again admitting that we are weak. As we are bombarded by the temptations of this world and by our own flesh, by our enemy, it often seems easier to hang out on the sidelines. But by your great grace, you have called us out of the pit of sin that we were living in. You have washed us. You have adopted us. You have given us the Holy Spirit to complete your work in us. Lord, we know that once we are called and justified by your blood, you seal us. You keep us until the day of redemption. You will keep us in the race, Lord, until we reach the end. But until that time, Lord, we ask for your strength in times of weariness. May we return to the truth of your word, to prayer, and to your body, the church, for encouragement to run with endurance. Thank you, Lord, that you are able to keep us from stumbling and that one day you will present us faultless to the Father with joy. You alone are our Savior. You alone are wise, and we give you the glory. It's in your majestic and powerful name that we pray. Amen. Amen.